Well, it's good to be with you uh, once more. Um, I bring greetings from the saints at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, in particular from uh, Steve and Wendy Wilkinson. I was able to have uh, dinner with them this past Monday night while I was uh, speaking at the conference there in Greenville. And so it's good, though, to be back here home among you and to uh, bring God's word to you as we continue our study in the book of Romans chapter 9. Please turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 9. We'll be reading uh, together. Uh, We're actually going to start in verse 14 and read through verse 29 to get some context. Uh, We uh, come to these difficult passages of Scripture, uh, confident that the Holy Spirit, uh, who inspired this word, is also at work to illumine it in our hearts that we might understand it and might live according to it. Hear God's word, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father God, we desire not just to know about you, but to know you, to know you intimately. We desire to know ourselves better. Lord, we desire to know what you are doing in your world. And and we pray that by the scriptures this morning, that you would give us grace to understand more, Lord, to know more of who you are, who we are. Father, we cannot do this in our own strength. And so we pray for the grace of your spirit to be at work in our midst. Lord, would the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
When I was in sixth grade, I went to the Jodine Dixie basketball camp outside of Macomb, Mississippi. In case you're not familiar with Dixie basketball camp, it's, it's not just a camp that teaches you how to, to be a better basketball player. It's also a camp that teaches you discipline and team accountability. It's sort of a little mini basketball boot camp. Uh, every morning, the counselors uh, would inspect your room in the room of your teammates. Uh, and if, if there was anything amiss, if there was a, a light left on, if there was a towel left hanging the wrong way, if you hadn't made your bed the right way, then they would give you what they called a tour. A tour could be extra running after practice. It could be, you know, kitchen duty, or it could be uh, having to stand in front of everyone else in the camp uh, and make a fool of yourself doing some embarrassing skit or, or song. Uh, well, the, the, the details are a little fuzzy in my memory, but I recall one morning, I know my room was clean, right? It was spotless. And yet when the names were read for who had to do tours that day, there it was, my team's name on the list. Turns out that one of our teammates had, had you know, not folded his towel the right way or had left his clothes out of his suitcase, whatever it might be. Uh, we had to go in front of everyone and sing some song and do some little dance and skit. And I still remember the feeling right, of being blamed for something that I hadn't done. It wasn't my fault, and yet here I was having to endure the consequences. Yes, I understood the rules that, you know, what happened to, to all the teammates, that, you know, no matter what someone did on your team, you had to suffer the consequences, but it wasn't fair, right? It wasn't right. It was, it was not my fault. That's how I felt, all right? And we've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced something like that in our life where we were blamed for someone else's actions, right? We were held accountable when, when we weren't involved at all, perhaps. And so perhaps we come to chapter 9, verse 19, and we have some degree of sympathy for the, the hypothetical response that, that Paul raises in verse 19 to what he's just written in, in Romans chapter 9. Now let's remember where we are, though, before we look at that response and Paul's response to the response. How did we get here? Well, you remember that, that in this chapter, Paul has begun agonizing over the fact that, that so many of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, as the Messiah. They've not believed in his salvation that God has accomplished through him. But Paul has told us that the reason for that rejection ultimately lies in this truth of God's sovereign and free election. He's told us in, in chapter nine, verse six, just because you were born as a child of Abraham physically doesn't mean that you will be a child of Abraham spiritually. Not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're part of the people of God externally doesn't mean you are part of the people of God internally. All right? But rather, God has chosen a remnant for himself, a people for himself by his grace and not according to our works. Now, Paul, as we saw last week, knows that, that this truth can, can naturally raise a lot of questions. And it can, it can raise this question of whether God is unjust in the way that he deals with his creatures. And so last week, Carl opened up verses 14 to, to 18, and, and you saw that the answer to that question of, is God unjust, is absolutely not. Of course not, by no means. Because God has mercy on, on whomever he wants to have mercy. He hardens whomever he wants to harden. His will, his pleasure, his desire, his choice is the determining factor in who will be saved and, and who will not. And this is not unjust 
because none of us deserve mercy. None of us deserve salvation. God is free to show or to withhold mercy however he chooses. Salvation, as Paul says there in verse 17, does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. But now Paul knows that, that what he's just written in verses 14 to 18 is going to raise another question. And you see it there in verse 19. And it's the question right, that we can sympathize with, we can resonate with. He says, but you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? The questioner is asking, look, if, if God is the one who decides to whom he will show mercy and, and if he wills to harden the rest, then why does he still blame unbelievers for their unbelief? Right? Why, if, if, if we can't resist the sovereign will of God, then, then how can we be responsible for our, our sinful actions and our sinful behavior and beliefs and thoughts and words? This is not fair, right? We're victims of God's will. We're, we're being oppressed. This is unjust. That's the, the response to what Paul has, has said. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've thought that. Well, in our passage, Paul is going to, to answer that question, which is really an accusation, isn't it? He's going to answer it in, in three ways. And, and he's going to answer it, interestingly, with questions of his own. Right? Rhetorical questions. And he answers it in this way. First, he's going to show us who we are. Secondly, he's going to show us who God is. And thirdly, he's going to show us what God's purpose and predestination is. So let's look at those three things together as we dig in. First, Paul wants to show us in response to this question, in answer to this question, who we are. And you see the answer to Paul's, to, to that question in verse 20. But before we look at it more closely, I want you to make sure you see what his answer is not. What his answer is not. Paul does not say this. He does not say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on. You're completely misunderstanding what I'm trying to say, right? The assumption on which your objection is based is completely wrong, completely misguided. You've got it all wrong, right? All these different ways that God deals with his creatures, it's not due solely to his free will. No, 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 no. It's, it's based on man's free will. That's, that's what Paul doesn't say, is it? You see, if, if the assumption on which this objection were, were wrong, then Paul would have said those things. He would say, wait, 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 wait. No, you've got me all wrong, right? It's not about God's free will. It's about man's free will. That's the determining fact. But Paul doesn't say that because the assumption on which this objection is based is in a sense correct. God's will, God's eternal decree is the determining factor in the eternal destinies of mankind. So then what is the answer that Paul gives to this objection, right? That, that, that how then can God hold us accountable and responsible? How then, why then does God still find fault? Well, Paul's first answer is to challenge the very legitimacy of the question itself. And he does this by reminding his readers of who we are. We are mere men. We are mere women. We are mere creatures. And on top of that, we are sinners. We are sinners. And so what right do we have to challenge God in this way? Look at how he puts it in verse 20. He says, but who are you, O man? to answer back to God, to talk back to God. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Now, 
part of us maybe wishes that Paul would have answered the question by, by giving some great long conversation about God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how these two mysteries sort of fit together. But he doesn't, does he? He says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You, you've all, if you have children, you've, you've had your own children talk back to you, right? And that's hard enough, right? It makes you upset perhaps, but, but it, it's, it's even worse, isn't it? When you are around someone or maybe just like in the mall or you're just you know, around your, your neighbors and all of a sudden you hear children talking back to their parents or what's even worse, you hear children talking back to their grandparents, right? And doesn't, isn't there a part of you that just sort of, you become, you know, steams like you want to grab the kid's head and say, this is your grandparent, right? And you cannot, how can you talk to him or her like this? And so if we have that reaction when it comes to, you know, human relationships, then, then don't you understand Paul's reaction here? He, he is saying, how do you even begin to think that you have the right to question how God governs his world? What presumption, what, what sinful arrogance that, that you, a sinner, presume to, to, to think that you have the wisdom, you have the right to stand in judgment over God's wisdom, God's freedom, God's justice. What arrogance to complain that God would treat you uh, unjustly. You've heard the saying, there's no such thing as a bad question. Well, Paul is saying here, no, 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 that, that's, that's not really correct. This is a really, really bad question, right? This is a sinful question. This is a question that, that, that comes out of a, a heart that seeks to deny our creatureliness and put ourselves in the place of God and call him to account. So Paul begins here by, by saying, you need to remember who you are. But, but let's be careful. What Paul's not doing is he's not saying that it's always a sin to ask God any question. Right? That it's always wrong to, to reply back to God. No, there is a way to question God that is of faith, right? that, that is motivated by a heart of submission to the Lord, that, that cries out for God to explain his, his ways from the conviction that he is utterly and always righteous. Think of Abraham in Genesis 18, when God comes to him and, and says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and Abraham asks God, he talks back, as it were, humbly, respectfully. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous in, in Sodom and along with the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Or think of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1, when he cries out, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Why do you make me to see iniquity? and calls me to look on wickedness, right? He's, he's struggling, he's wrestling with God. But again, it's, it's motivated by faith. It's stemming and flowing from faith. We hear it in the cry of Jesus himself, don't we? In the garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So, so Paul is not rebuking all question asking. He's rebuking this impertinent, insolent, arrogant, God-defying attitude that wants to make God answerable to man based on human principles and human ways of thinking. He's challenging this attempt to, to throw the blame back on God the way that Adam did when 
He was caught in his sin of eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how did Adam respond? He said, well, this woman whom you gave me, right? It's your fault, God. If you wouldn't have given me Eve, it wouldn't have turned out this way. And Paul would say, are you kidding me? Who who are you? How does God respond to Job? Job, who had questions and complaints, many of which were were well-spoken, God tells us at the end of the book. And yet, God says this to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And we see in Job's response to God's words to him, the only proper response to God's ways, particularly as we think about his sovereign and his free will to determine the destinies of his creatures. What does Job say in response to God? He says, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. The hand on the mouth, Moses removing the sandals from the feet before the almighty God, the Holy One, the seraphim with their, two of their wings covering their feet, covering their creatureliness and covering their face before the Holy One of Israel. Paul wants to say, who do you think you are? We must know who we are, we are creatures. We cannot call the Almighty to account. But secondly, Paul answers the question of verse 19 by reminding us who God is. Right? Right? Sin don't, doesn't only make us forget who we are, it, it also, it always makes us forget who God is. And so look at his second response in verses 20 and 21. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Again, it's a rhetorical question. And Paul here is alluding to several passages from the Old Testament. One is Isaiah 29, verse 16, when, when God speaks to the hypocritical Israelites of, his, of that day, and, and he says, you Israelites, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's clueless. Or Isaiah 45, verse nine, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands, he has no skill, he has no ability. And then we think of Jeremiah chapter 18, when the prophet goes down to the potter's house and sees the potter freely use his, his right over the clay to make different vessels according to his will. All these passages are in the background of what Paul is, is writing here in, in Romans chapter nine as he responds to this question. And the point is clear, isn't it? We are creatures and God is the sovereign creator. We are clay and God is the potter. It's not just that, that we have no right to question God, but, but God as the great potter has the right, the freedom, the authority, the power to take a lump of clay and to turn it into whatever he chooses. He can do whatever he wants with his creatures. He can judge 
a hard-hearted Pharaoh by giving him over to his wickedness, hardening him by removing the restraints that had been keeping him from being as bad as he might possibly be. God can do that with Pharaoh. But God can also mercifully change a hard heart and soften it and remove the heart of stone and, and replace it with a heart of flesh and forgive sin because of the death of his son on the cross. God has the prerogative. Right? God has the right to act according to his good pleasure because he is God. He is the potter. He is the maker. He is the creator. And we are the creatures. You see that question in verse 19. As we've said, it assumes that mankind is being treated unjustly. That mankind is being blamed for something that it had no control over, no responsibility for, that, that, that it was being blamed for something it had not done. But that charge cannot stick against God because God in no way is the author of sin, the Bible teaches us. He is the Holy One and He is the Free One. He has the right to find fault with us even though He also is the one who has determined sovereignly our eternal destinies before the foundation of the world. How can all these things work together? How can all these things be true? It's because God in his election of us presupposes mankind's fall in Adam's sin. Right? Look at the way that Paul speaks of election here. Those who are chosen are said to be objects of God's mercy and compassion, which they don't deserve. What that's saying to us is, is look, those who are saved, they're not worthy of it. They haven't earned it. They haven't done anything to, to, to merit it. On the contrary, just like those who are hardened, they've done everything to deserve and, and merit hardening. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves to be chosen. No one has a claim on God's grace. From the mass of fallen humanity, God is free to choose a Jacob for salvation and not to choose an Esau. And yes, this, this means, and this is hard to, to receive and accept, it means that God is not fair in the sense of treating everyone the same. But let us never forget that God is never unjust. He is never unjust. He never gives anyone injustice. And so the questioner here, demanding justice at God's hand, Paul would say, are you crazy? Are you sure that you really want the potter to give you what you deserve? We must remember who God is. We must remember he is the sovereign creator. He is the one who freely and sovereignly has the right to do with his creatures as he will. Well, last, Paul answers this question with a, yet a third question, a third rhetorical question by showing us what God's purpose in predestination is, or might say his purpose says. Look at what he writes there in verses 22 and, and following. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Again, you hear Paul saying, hey, hey, if God wants to do it this way, this is his prerogative. What if he wants to do it this way? What can you say in reply to a sovereign God? Here, Paul is, is declaring once again the, the truth that God has foreordained some to be vessels of wrath, vessels for wrath, prepared for destruction, and others he has predestined to be vessels obtaining mercy, whom he has prepared beforehand for glory. But notice that Paul in this question is not merely stating again the truth of election, the fact of it, 
But he's also telling us that God has a rationale and a reason for the way in which he works. On the one hand, just like he says in verse 17 regarding Pharaoh, God is saying to us here that he endures those who will eventually receive his judgment. He endures them for a a period of time. He does not judge them immediately so that his wrath might be even more powerfully made known through their judgment. Judgment may be deferred, but those who try to dethrone God will in due time be judged. As Moses tells the sons of Reuben and Gad, be sure that your sin will find you out. And so God is saying, look, I defer my judgment in order that when judgment comes, it will be seen all the more gloriously, my power, my holiness. But that deferral of justice, his bearing with the non-elect rather than visiting his wrath upon them immediately, it doesn't only serve to demonstrate God's holiness and justice, does it? Rather, you see the little words there, in order to. God is saying that he also endures the sin of sinners in order to, for the purpose of making known the riches of his glory and grace and mercy even more clearly against the backdrop of his wrath and justice. You see, when we understand what we deserve by nature, then what we receive by grace shines forth all the more brightly. When we understand what we deserve by nature, then the grace that we receive, it just shines forth with all the more glory, all the more brilliance. And you notice here that Paul uses the word glory in two different senses, doesn't he? In the first place, he says that that God desires to display the riches of his inherent glory, the splendor, the the fullness of his perfections. He, He desires to display this glory. But then at the end of that verse, He says that he has planned in advance to bestow glory upon these vessels of mercy and eternity. The glory that God has in of himself inherently will be displayed both in judgment and in salvation. But that glory will also be bestowed upon those whom he has freely and graciously and and undeservedly chosen to be vessels of mercy. And this opens up another window into the purposes of God and predestination. Look at verse 24. Paul continues by saying, he mentions these vessels of mercy whom he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul here is is going back to one of the main themes of the whole letter and particularly of chapters nine through 11 uh, of saying that, that God's purpose and sovereign election is to save a multitude that no man can number of both Jews and Gentiles. Yes, it is true. Only a remnant of of Jews have been chosen unto salvation. Not all Israel is Israel. But as Paul's going to make clear in the rest of these chapters, with the coming of Jesus, the Gentiles have been grafted in to spiritual Israel, to the true Israel. And so Paul closes out this this section that we've read by, by showing that this purpose of God to bring the Gentiles into the fold, into the tree of God's people, into the true vine, This purpose wasn't only fixed in times eternal, but it was revealed in time through his prophets, Hosea and Isaiah in particular. We saw it, didn't we, in Hosea chapter 1 as we read God's plan to to bring his exiled people back to himself. The the people of Israel were a foreshadowing, a type of the Gentiles who were to come. When when God, who who would bring his, his wayward people who were outside, who were not his people, 
was going to bring his Jewish people back, returning from exile. And in the same way, Paul is saying, he's going to deal with the Gentiles. Those who are strangers to the covenants of promise, God has brought near through Jesus Christ. Those who once were forsaken have now been embraced in covenant love. And the Jews who have been chosen by God, that remnant has also been brought to Christ, called into salvation. But we see, don't we, in the way that God has dealt with the Jews, we see both the severity and the kindness of the Lord. And, and you see it in those last two passages that Paul quotes. In verses 27 and 28, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 10, and he says this, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You see, the, the fact that only a remnant is saved shows the severity of the Lord against sin. But on the other hand, the fact that a remnant is saved, that a remnant is spared, shows the kindness of God. In verse 29, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 1, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, God's purpose, according to election, stands. His word has not failed. He is the God who is saving all of his people, Jew and Gentile, bringing them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, sovereignly, freely. God is doing it in a way that brings him glory, both in his justice and in his mercy. So this is how Paul answers the questioner of verse 19. He shows us who we are, mere creatures. He shows us who God is, the potter, the creator, the free one. And he shows us what God's purpose and predestination is to glorify his name and to bring glory to vessels of mercy that he has freely chosen, both from Jew and from Gentile. But I'm sure that, that Paul's words here in, in Romans 9, they, they don't answer, do they, all your questions about election. In fact, maybe they raise more questions than they answer. These last three sermons, you've been, wow, I, I like that. I hear that. That's good. I like that answer. But what about this? It makes me think this. What about this? Well, let me encourage you as we close. In light of this text and the way Paul handles this, let me encourage you in several directions. First, let this passage teach you how to ask your questions. Right? To, to ask them not in unbelief, not in prideful, snarky, sarcastic disdain of God, but to ask them in humility, in faith, in submission to the will and the word of God. Ask your questions, but ask them reverently and not irreverently. But second, let this text also be a warning that there are some questions that you'll never get answered in this life. Right? Nowhere does the Bible tell us why one person is chosen and another person is passed by, why one person has the, the scales of their eyes removed and, and one person is hardened in their sinfulness. It certainly tells us what the answer is not. It's not because the person who is saved is any better than the person who's not saved. But it doesn't get to the depths. Only God knows. Only the Lord and his divine mind knows why. And so we need to be willing, again, to submit ourselves to the, the scriptures, to, to be able to live with unanswered questions, to be able to live with the tension, live with the, the mystery. We are not God. That's part of the point of this text. 
And so we need to recognize that our finite minds cannot grasp the infinite mind of God beyond what he has revealed to us in his word. And so let it humble us again and, and give us reason to pause. When we insist on having an answer for our question, there will be some answers that are not going to come. And we've got to be okay with that. But, but, but third, let me speak a word of application to you who this morning are not trusting in Jesus Christ. You are not a Christian. You know it. Maybe people around you know it. Maybe you're very open about it. My prayer is that these words would sober you up to recognize the danger that you are in if you remain outside of Jesus Christ, if you refuse to receive him and to trust him. Now, you might want to say, well, wait a minute, but if I'm a vessel of wrath, if God has, has chosen to harden me in sin, then what hope do I have? But here's the thing. Only God knows if you are a vessel of wrath. We certainly don't know it. You don't even know it. Right? You're here this morning. You're hearing the gospel preached. You're hearing the warning of justice to come, of, of speedy and full judgment to come. You're hearing the good news of a sovereign Savior. And this means that the time is not too late for you to retract, to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. My prayer is that the long suffering of God toward you this morning would lead you to repentance rather than leading you into greater and greater hardness. Again, God knows those who are his. And so through the preaching of the word, even you who are outside of Christ might even this morning be brought near to him by the preaching of the gospel. Come to Christ. And finally, to you who are believers, my prayer is that what we've looked at these last three weeks would lead you to, to have hearts that overflow in grateful praise in humble worship, in bold evangelism. Take your hymnals and turn to page 850, not hymn 850, but page 850 at the very back. If you didn't realize, the, the, the Trinity hymnal has the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms in the back of the hymnal. And I want you to see in chapter three, which is the chapter on God's eternal decree, look at section eight on page 850. I love this, this paragraph that the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith wrote in the 1640s. They write this about predestination. They say, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care so that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or calling, they may be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. This is the fruit so beautifully stated that the, that the truth of election ought to produce within our hearts. That's my prayer for us, that in, in spite of all of our unanswered questions, in spite of the difficulty it is to, to hear and to receive the things that Paul has said these past three weeks, yet, may, by the grace of God, may these truths soften our heart, fill us with a huge view of God, that we would admire him and, and reverence him and worship him gratefully, and that we would know that apart from the grace of God, we are lost. 
And therefore, we want to go boldly out into the world to share this good news of the lost. We want to go and gather in all of those whom God has chosen for himself from around the world. The truth of election empowers evangelism. It humbles the sinner. It leads us to a desire to walk holy and godly before him all our days. May the Lord be pleased to take these words and drill them deep within our hearts so that we might walk humbly with our God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we know that we're not worthy or deserving even to have the Bible in our own language, to be able to sit freely in corporate worship, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to gather with believers for worship and prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the blessings that we enjoy. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you've granted freely to us, undeserving though we are. Lord, would you change us and, and humble us and, and embolden us. Lord, as we go forth in the light of your truth, help us, we pray, to walk in that abundant consolation, that full assurance of faith. Lord, to walk in that humility as well as that, that dignity and that great and glorious rejoicing that you, our sovereign and free God, have taken the likes of us, made us vessels of mercy for your name's sake and for our sharing in that glory. Lord, it is more than we can take in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.